At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Hallelujah, church. Let's keep putting our hands together. Yes, for our Savior and also for our children. Let's continue to just praise God as our children make their way into kids' ministry. Come on, if you got a child close to you, let them know you love them. Let them know you're proud of them, that we love our children. We're so grateful that we get to have them in here with worship, with us in worship. Hallelujah, friends. Thank you so much. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Uh, and we're just going to continue to be grateful for our worship team that leads us uh, in worship every single Sunday to the throne of grace. I'm so grateful for our team. I'm so grateful that we get to be here on yet another Sunday as we continue uh, in this series called What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today. Uh, so we're uh, going to continue here in Matthew chapter 25. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn it right away. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to cover the first 13 verses of the 25th chapter today. Uh, and I want to start with, uh, with a question that many of us have probably experienced something like this before. But how many of you have ever had a dream uh, and you woke up in like a panic? You woke up startled because you were unprepared for whatever it was in the dream, right? Like you show up to take an exam of a class you've never been to, right? Or you show up for the first day at work and uh, you have the wrong clothes on if you have any clothes on at all, right? Or you're, you just can't talk, you can't say anything, and you wake up in a panic and you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for, for that appointment. I wasn't ready for, for what was happening, and it scares us to our core. Uh, but Matthew chapter 25, the first 13 verses, Jesus tells us a parable that illustrates that precisely, but it illustrates how being ready for the most important appointment of our life is far more important than an exam, is far more important than uh, late to pick up your date for homecoming or whatever the case may be, uh, but the most important appointment of our life when we meet Jesus face to face. And how if we're not ready for that one, that'll be far scarier than waking up from a bad dream, amen? So last week, we asked and answered the question, are you ready? Uh, this week, we're going to go in a completely different direction and ask and answer the question, are you really ready? So we're going to make sure that we are ready. We have to make sure that for this appointment, we are ready. And we're going to look at this entire parable, and then we're going to draw out three implications from this parable and what that means for our lives. But I think, uh, you know, as we talk about readiness, as we talk about authentic belief in salvation, I think it's important for us to mention that, you know, I, I've seen perhaps now more than ever, certainly in my lifetime, uh, we see people grossly misinterpreting scripture as a catalyzing agent for the hate that's in their heart. That, you know, just because somebody has a Twitter handle and puts a biblical address at the end of a tweet, that does not mean it's biblical. Amen? Okay, a couple of us are here. Some people are shaking their head no. I don't know if you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me right now. But, but I think that we see this, uh, and, and this, this parable is going to flesh some of this out as well, that those of us that are authentically following Jesus Christ, that the, the, the message that we portray, the image that we portray, the people that we are, 
needs to be actually people that are following Jesus Christ. Because there are going to be people who are, led, are uh, uh, trying to lead us astray. There's going to be people that are fear-mongering. There's going to be all these different kinds of things, all these different messages that we know are going to come into us. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus has been talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapters 24 and 25, he's saying, stay awake. Don't be led astray. Don't be misguided. Don't even let this stuff get you too angry or too upset because I'm telling you it is coming. He's saying this is exactly the type of stuff that you can expect as the natural world progresses on from the destruction of Jerusalem onto the coming of the Son of Man and the coming of the end of the age. Now, this is really just one incredibly long answer to a pretty simple question, right? What the disciples asked him a simple question at the beginning of chapter 24. They were like, they say, what will the signs be? How will we know? What will it look like? And then for the last four weeks, that's what we've been addressing. Jesus' answer to this question. And Jesus knows exactly where he is in his earthly ministry. He knows that uh, in 26, 27, 28, the end of Matthew's gospel, he is going to be betrayed. He is going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise from the dead. He knows where he is here. So this is kind of some of the final moments as he is gathering his disciples together, as he made his way up the Mount of Olives to have this Olivet Discourse where they, they have to reckon with some of the answers he has to this question, right? The disciples are reckoning with Jesus answering the question last week of, no man knows the day or the hour. You're asking when these things will be, and he's telling you, no one will know. So he's answering this question and telling them primarily, stay awake, be watchful, be spiritually alert, be vigilant to these uh, things that are going to be presented as truths, but they are falsehood, to these people that are going to present themselves as the people that could save you, but only Jesus can offer salvation. So we saw last week uh, what happens when the master comes back unexpectedly, right? And we talked about when we are uh, acting wrong or, you know, and somebody comes home unexpectedly. We talked about having parties at your house when your parents went out of town. Amen. You can give amen for that. It's okay, right? That's the old you, right? Hopefully that's the old you, right? Uh, so the master comes back unexpectedly, and he's going to come at an unexpected time. We do not know exactly when Christ is going to return. That's what we addressed last week through a couple parables this week, uh, and then through the next two weeks as we wrap up this series, we're going to address another parable about uh, when the master returns unexpectedly, but also at a delayed time. So you, are, you know he's coming, but maybe you felt like you've had to wait a little bit too long. Maybe you feel like he's been delayed this long, so he may not come back right away. And as we continue on here throughout all of chapter 25, Jesus sets us in the future. He set his disciples in the future uh, by opening chapter 25 by saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like, right? He's explained throughout all of Matthew's gospel what the kingdom of heaven is is like and he's inviting us into this already but not yet fully consummated or fulfilled kingdom of heaven and he's telling them what it is going to be like so as we look at these first 13 verses of matthew chapter 25 today we're going to look at kind of another angle of what it means to stay awake uh, as we kind of flesh out this big idea through the story and through these three implications that true disciples make provisions to go the distance true disciples make provisions to go the distance. So we're going to go through this entire story. Again, we, we saw that Jesus opens it by saying, will be like. So we know that it's a story of something that is going to happen in the future, but we also need to outline a little bit about what a parable is. We had a series on parables not too long ago, so hopefully some of it, some of you uh, have this fresh in your mind. But 
almost every time that Jesus tells a parable throughout the Gospels, it is a fictional story. He is making up a story to illustrate a very real and very true truth from the kingdom of heaven. So he's telling a story uh, that is not necessarily a real story right here and right now. It's about 10 virgins or 10 bridesmaids would be a better translation for us today. But he's telling this fictional story to illustrate a very real truth from the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, there's not, you're not going to find tons of preaching on the parable of the 10 virgins. You're not going to find a lot of warm, happy-go-lucky Bible studies on the parable of the 10 virgins because there's some really, really deep truths in here for us today. So I'm going to pray for us now as we go into the word of God that God would uh, anoint us to understand this and open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to his word. Father, please, as you have brought us here to have a meeting with us, your people, I pray now, Holy Spirit of the living God, in the mighty name of Jesus, that you would reveal your truth to us, that your word would go forth uh, without any stain of imperfection or impurity from me, God, that it would be your word that we receive today, that you, Holy Spirit of the living God, would uh, equip us to see the truth that Jesus was outlining here, equip us not to get bogged down in uh, the bad news that we heard this week, not to get bogged down in any of the details that are maybe left unexplained, uh, but that you, by your power, would equip us to see exactly what your word says to us today. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus, together we say amen. And amen. Okay. All right. So the parable of the ten virgins. We're going to, and again, uh, virgins probably best translated today for us bridesmaids. And, and as you hear the word bridegroom, that just means groom to be. So we're talking about uh, a wedding that's about to happen with a groom and a bride. They're fiancés at this point in modern language for us. And there's bridesmaids. or It's like a bridal party, essentially, in, in words for us today. So I'm going to read the whole parable, and then we're going to outline what's going on here. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there won't be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourself. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So again, a fictional story that is going to illustrate for us a very real and very true truth from the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying this will be like this. So we should instantly turn our ears into Jesus talking about something that's going to happen in the future. And the best way to be prepared for the future is to know it, right? If you know what's going to happen in the future, then you will prepare yourself today to be ready for that moment in the future. So, so the best way that we can prepare for this particular future is to vividly imagine ourselves knowing the future and how we're going to get prepared to stay awake. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like this. These ten 
10 virgins or these 10 bridesmaids. So we're not going to flesh out every single detail of first century Near Eastern Palestinian wedding culture, but it is important for us to understand that this would be a story that wouldn't throw Jesus' disciples off. They would understand what he's talking about when he's saying these types of words, these types of things. So typically what would happen is that there would be a, a marriage that would be arranged, that the bride and the groom, they would know each other, they would know that they are to be married. This would go on for probably quite a long time, and that there would come a day when the bride and all, excuse me, the groom and his groomsmen would come to the bride in her house with her bridesmaids, uh, and it would happen usually in the evening, and then they would start this processional, this party into the wedding feast, into the celebration of their marriage. Now, in this culture, the, when the sun went down, that meant that day ended. And even in the dark, that was still kind of the beginning of the new day. So it would be very common, there are still some children in here, so I'll, I'll make sure that I keep it PG. Uh, it would be very common for a young groom who's very excited for his marriage to become formal to go as soon as possible to go get his bride, right? So that would usually happen when the sun was going down, after the sun had gone down, because they wanted to get this party started, right? They wanted the marriage to start. They wanted this feast to start. They wanted the celebration to start. So it would not have been uncommon uh, for a bride and her bridesmaids, right? They're not having a bachelorette party. That's not what's going on right here. So you can throw that out of your mind. But they would be in this home. They would have lamps. They would have had extra oil. That's what the wise would have done because they would know that the groom is coming to get them and the party is going to start. So as they're making their way from the bride's house to the groom's house, that they would be able to light their way, that they would have lamps to light their way because the groom would typically come get the bride in the dark, right? So are we tracking together? We all understand? Just nod your head. Yes. Okay. Amen. I wave. That's good. All right. We're all good. But Jesus says five were wise and five were foolish. And then he starts to outline what it means to be wise and foolish. The wise ones, he said, Got their oil, then got their lamps. They had extra oil so that they would be able to keep their lamp lit. The foolish had no oil, but had their lamps. So we start to see a little bit of a differentiation here. And then what happens? Just like every good wedding movie or every good story, there's an unexpected turn, right? The bridegroom is late that he's not here when he's typically supposed to be here. And again, this would be strange for Jesus' original audience as they're hearing this in the original language because this isn't the way that things typically would have happened. But then it comes to midnight, the, the groom is hours late, which I don't know how that has turned on its head completely, right? Now, brides, you're allowed to be wait, late to your wedding, right? But, but if a groom is late, the, the wedding's off, right? You're in, you're in big trouble. But it, it was this way for Jesus' parable. Uh, so it comes to midnight, a big announcement. The bridegroom is here. It's exciting times. But they have all fallen asleep. All ten were there. All ten bridesmaids are virgins. They all had their lamps. They all fell asleep. They were all drowsy. And then they all woke up and trimmed their lamps when they heard the announcement. So what happens now is the five foolish ones say, oh, we don't have enough oil to keep our lamp lit. We're, we're not ready. And they tell this to uh, the five wise ones. And we, again, this is a parable. It's a story. And the wise ones say, like, nah, there's not enough. There wouldn't be enough for us and for you. You need to go buy some. And it's midnight, right? So that really probably wouldn't make any sense. I don't, I don't know if they had, like, In-N-Out or M&K there at that point in time. Like, you could go at midnight. I'm not sure. Maybe they had a 24-hour CVS or something, right? You could go get the oil. But they say, we don't have enough for us and for you. You need to go buy some. 
Uh, and so, so now Jesus is starting to kind of show us what it means to be wise and foolish as this parable goes. So the bridegroom comes. He takes the five wise ones that are ready. They're walking down. They go into the wedding feast. They go into the marriage supper. And the door was shut. And then... The, the five foolish ones, they're probably rushing back, right? They, they got their oil at Kroger, and they're, they're running to try to meet the bridal party, and they get there, and the door's closed. And they're like, oh, the, the door's closed. We're going to miss the party. We're going to miss what, what God has for us. We're going to miss what's going on here. We're not going to be able to get in. And then Jesus now, in verses 11, 12, and 13, he kind of has one foot in the story and one foot in the real world. He's, he's kind of stepping us out of the parable slowly because it changes, right? So they knock on the door, they see that it is shut, and what do they say? They say, Lord, Lord, let us in. He's no longer the bridegroom now. He's not the groom anymore. He is Lord, Lord. And every time I, I read this gospel, there's only one Lord, Lord, right? There's only one person who carries that title. So Jesus is kind of stepping us out of the story right now. And he's starting to paint this picture of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. That they were foolish. They were not ready. They knock on the door. Lord, Lord, let us in. He answers the door and says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So when we hear this. Jesus is painting a picture that I believe those in his original audience would begin to kind of understand what is going on. That hearing the, the term Lord, Lord was often used. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, many will come to me. They will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing works and acts of ministry in your name? And on that day, he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And truly, I say to you, was also a phrase that was employed by Christ often when he was announcing a kingdom of heaven truth. When he was talking about a truth that uh, people had not understood to be true, but he is telling them that it is true. And then he says, I do not know you. The door is shut. The foolish bridesmaids are on the outside looking in. Jesus says, I never knew you. And then he ends with the same warning that we received last week in chapter 24. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this is the story that Jesus tells, the parable that Jesus tells about this wedding supper that is coming, about these foolish virgins, these foolish bridesmaids. And we're going to get three implications out of this story, three things that matter very deeply for us because of this story. Remember, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like. This day and time has not happened yet for the disciples, and it has not happened yet for us, so we have something to learn today. Amen? Okay, so three implications from this story, from the parable of the ten virgins. The first one is that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Jesus knew his days on earth were coming to an end. He knew his ministry on earth was about to be ended. So he is preparing his disciples. He's preparing those around him to be ready for the kingdom of heaven that's coming, to be ready to continue on with the ministry that he has assigned to them, and he's preparing us for the same thing with this parable. And what we see here, again, is that we need to kind of remark on the similarities first. That there are ten bridesmaids. They're all there together. They all have a lamp. They all get drowsy. They all fall asleep. They all wake up. They all trim their lamps. 
And then when they realize they don't have oil, that's when they're separated between the foolish and the wise. So what we see right away is with superficial discipleship proving insufficient is that the way that these uh, ten virgins are described to us, it appears that they don't even realize there's a problem until it's too late. That they don't, they don't even understand that they have a spiritual problem until it is too late. And this is Jesus' ministry through and through. He talked about the appearance of faith over and over and over again. And if we read Matthew 23, 24, and 25 together, you'll really see it's just a couple conversations. That he's having a conversation with the Pharisees in the temple, and then he goes out of the temple up a mountain and has a conversation with his disciples. I don't know the timeline necessarily for if it was one day, two days, or even an afternoon, but it was not a very long time between these conversations. So Jesus is really telling, in my opinion, the same story, the same answer that they need to understand when he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as he had just prescribed to the Pharisees, he he, uh, pronounced woes over them by saying, you are like whitewashed tombs. That there is like a tomb that's pretty on the outside, but there is a dead person on the inside of it. That your cup on the outside is clean and pretty and attractive, but it is dirty on the inside. And he is saying, the wise had oil for their lamps, but the foolish had lamps with no oil in them. So we're going to tease this out. We're going to continue to walk with Jesus as we work through uh, the, the explanation of this parable. And I think the thing that is like so remarkable to me is the similarities of these bridesmaids up until the moment when they realized there was a problem. As a pastor, there's two things about this parable that deeply trouble me daily because I see it in many of our lives. I see it in many people's lives here uh, right away. The first thing that troubles me is how many people think that the spiritual onus to get to heaven is on them, that they believe I have to do it. I hear pretty regularly when I see people on the street, and I'm like, hey, when are you going to come back to church? They say, oh, I have a few things I need to clean up first. I'm like, maybe I'll see you. Because I realize that we can't do that. We can't clean ourselves up. This is the place to come when you want to get cleaned up. And it's not about this building. It's not about 830 Auburn Avenue. It's not about me, but it is about Jesus. So that's the first thing that troubles me. But perhaps more in line with this parable is the second thing. is how many people think that they are okay with God, but they are not. But there is going to come a day when the wedding feast is happening and they're on the outside and Jesus says, he's like, like John from high school, like, who, who are you? He's like, I don't, I don't know who you are. And that is deeply troubling to me. That there are many people with lamps but no oil in them. Many people who look like they're doing the right things on the outside, but on the inside, Jesus does not know them, and they do not know Jesus. It is deeply troubling. And I know it's true because it's in the scripture. And I know it's true because I've heard it, and and I've seen it. When, When people say, I'm doing all the right things, Pastor, why isn't this working? I know all the right answers to the gospel. Why is this not working? Why is my life falling apart? Why don't I feel close to God? And I fear that many of their answers would be Jesus' answer of, I don't know who you are. I never knew you. But there is a lot of hope for, these, for both of these people because I've seen it happen in both of the, the fictional stories that I've told, both of the people that I've described. I've seen their lives turn around for Christ. I have seen people, because I'm one of these people, who said, 
I am sick and tired of doing it by myself. I surrender, Jesus. I give it up to you. How many of you, is that your story? Where you say, I'm not going to do it by myself anymore. I'm going to give myself over to you, Jesus. And we see that there is beauty to that. And we know that that story can be turned around. And I've also seen it for the second person whose story I talked about. The person who thinks they're doing everything the right way. Who thinks they've got it all together. But then they get punched in the face with a tragedy. Or a traumatic event. And they were like, whoa. Like, I'm, I may not. I may not know God. I, I may not be who I thought I was. And I think that was probably the story for many people, right, from 2019 to 2021, right? Like a lot of people were going to church in 2019 and then that gets removed and the whole world gets shaken up and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I think 2020 was a great way to find out whether or not you are really following Jesus, right? It's a great way to find out where is your hope. And, and this is a story that, again, that Jesus has told super commonly. He talks about this in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, right? Where he tells Nicodemus that, that you can't inherit eternal life until you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, I have, I have to go back to my mother's womb? What, what do you mean, born again? Like, I can't be born again. And for many of us, it is people who are kind of like doing the right things, maybe have the right answer, but have not experienced the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, the fullness of the true reality of the life-changing, life-saving nature of the gospel. You know, I remember a couple years ago, we took our kids on a, a field trip uh, in, in summer when we had the literacy program, which we're going to do again this summer. So get your kids ready for an awesome program experience. Where we took them to the DIA, and most of the time kids have only ever colored with a crayon. Unless they're like my children, who can find markers anywhere. I don't, like, I hide them really well, but it's, there's like a magnetism. And they find markers and write all over the walls, and I get really excited. Uh, but, but it's like a child going to the DIA, and all they've ever colored with is a crayon. And they've never seen... Uh, a, a picture painted by Claude Monet. They've never seen a beautiful work by Jean-Michel Basquiat. They've never seen Pablo Picasso. They've never seen these beautiful works of art, and all they have is a crayon, and they're like, oh, wow, there is more. There's something bigger. And many of us have been walking around with crayon Christianity, right? And, and we get punched in the face. We go to the DIA, and we're like, oh, there is more to this. It's amazing that we need to notice the thing about these wise and foolish bridesmaids, that they were all together until they realized they had a problem that they couldn't fix. And they said, now I know the difference. Just like we say, now we know the difference. Just like the Apostle Paul said that we are to be in the world but not of the world, I think there are many people who are in the church but have not been born again into the church, into the church of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the saddest things on earth that about 150 million people are sitting in church right now today in this country. And I, I would venture to say that there are at least a handful of them that are in church but are also going to hell. So friends, we need to figure this out. This is a very important truth for us to figure out, that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Today, right after service, we're going to have uh, our membership class here. We're going to have our Next Steps Pathway. So we've talked about this for months, that if you have thought about joining the church, today is a great day to come right after second service uh, and, and to get one of these t-shirts, right? Who likes t-shirts? <laughs> come for the t-shirt, but you'll leave having gotten the gospel. It's, it's really good. But the shirt says, I am Woodside Pontiac for life. And it is not a life sentence, amen, right? It's not like you're being punished. But I want us to understand 
what church membership looks like, that it is that you are to receive life. It's like if I were to put this on the cross, right, like this, this shirt over somebody without Jesus inside of them, it's just a worthless T-shirt. It doesn't mean anything, right? And, and just like joining a church, like signing your name on a clipboard, getting the envelopes and, you know, tithing 3 or 4% a year saying, I'm doing my part. I know I'm going to heaven. If you do not have a realistic and an authentic encounter with Christ Jesus, internalizing the gospel into your heart, into your entire being, then your lamp is empty, church. Then we'll be like those foolish bridesmaids who didn't have enough oil to make the entire journey. And if this is resonating with you, if you feel like, well, I, I, I do all the right things, pastor, but I'm, I kind of feel like that kind of person that you're saying may not have the oil for their lamp. We need to have a discussion today. Or maybe you just need to look at somebody as we close and worship, like who's just singing their heart out and just ask them, what are you doing? Why, why, are, why do you do this? Why are your hands up? Like, do you have a question? What, what is going on? But if there is an emptiness inside of you, and you know, I don't have to tell you if you're feeling empty, you know it better than I do. Perhaps you have a really beautiful polished lamp with no oil in it, but you can get that oil today, right? You can receive that today. So the first implication that we see from this parable is that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. The second thing that we need to understand is that delays test us, that delays test us. As, as we're looking at true disciples who make provisions to go the distance, that and Jesus illustrated this throughout Matthew's gospel where he talked about this type of discipleship that will not last. And, and I was tempted to put air quotes on, the, on discipleship that will not last because real discipleship to Christ Jesus will definitely last. But every single one of us in here is a disciple. Not every single one of us in here is a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you are being discipled. Every single day you're being discipled. Some of us are disciples of CNN and Fox News. Some of us are disciples of whatever our favorite radio program is, whoever our favorite musical artist is. Some of us are just disciples of worldliness, consumerism, that I have to go buy the next thing because that's what my teacher taught me. That's what I have to go do. All of us are being discipled. Not all of us are walking as disciples of Christ. And it's a lot like a lot of really good Christians, but not a lot of people really following Christ. A lot of people that are really trying their best not to sin, but not a lot of people that are really trying their best to follow Christ, right? Because if we're just trying not to sin, we're just trying to get to the edge to the point where I won't get consequences. But if you're following Christ, all of these things will come. And I'm going to speak kind of disparagingly about ministry at the church and things that, uh, uh, of the church throughout this message. But please know that I'm not upset with what God is doing in his church. I'm just saying that if you're just doing church, if you're playing church without having a relationship with Jesus, this stuff won't matter. Right? This stuff's just going to burn out. It's going to go away. So as we look at the parable here and see how these delays test us and, and how we see that when the bridegroom returns, that is when the foolish virgins realize, I have a problem. There is not enough substance to keep this flame going. And again, Jesus taught about this. And when we hear this, I think our minds should instantly go to the parable of the soils, right? That the rocky soil. I want to read what, what Jesus said here. It's he was talking about somebody who immediately received the good news. That they were together. They were in church. They were doing the right things. Uh, but then, then trouble came. And what happened? He says this in Matthew chapter 13. That this person hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, 
And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. Without deep roots in Christ, friends, you will not last. And I know that this is hard to hear. And I know that I'm saying many things that might sound like you have to do this work. But the beauty is you don't have to do this work. That only Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can do this work. And what Jesus is doing for his disciples in the Olivet Discourse is the same thing he's doing for us right now. He is preparing us for the persecution that will come. He's preparing us for the difficulty that will come. And he's saying that if you don't have deep roots, if you don't actually have what it takes, then the delays, the persecution, the tribulation, all the difficulty, this, this boy or girl breaking up with you, this job that you lose, you know, this thing falling through, your money's not right this month, whatever it might be, if you don't have deep roots in Jesus Christ, you're going to fall away. You're going to say, I'm, I don't want this Jesus stuff. It didn't work for me, right? That Jesus gave up on me. So he's saying that you have to have these deep roots. And, and because these tests come, these trials come. The early disciples thought Christ was returning immediately. So he's telling them, it's not going to be quite like that. They could not have imagined a future when Jerusalem was destroyed that wasn't the coming of the end of the age. That wasn't the sign of the Son of Man. So he's telling them, you need to keep going, that many things are going to happen. Settle down. The end is not here yet. And we all know what this feels like. We know what it feels like when a delay comes, right? We believe that God gave up on us when things don't happen on exactly our time. Amen? Okay. We have a couple honest folks here. I know. The question is, are you ready and willing to wait for Christ? Are you ready and willing when the bridegroom is delayed? I know it all sounds good when we first hear the message of the gospel and we're like, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. And then a month later, you're like, nah, it didn't work. It didn't take. I know there's people in this room right now that have waited on the Lord for years for things to come through. And we have to ask the question, will my faith in Christ be just as vigorous 10 years from today as it is right now? Will I be saying amen and hallelujah when I hear the Olivet Discourse being preached again in 10 years after it didn't come? And perhaps a scarier question for many of us, is my faith as vigorous as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, five years ago, even the beginning of 2019? Or has the delay tested me too deeply and revealed that my roots don't go deep in Christ? That it was just something that I agreed to for a minute because I thought it would feel better. That you must reach deep down as a disciple of Christ. And you must be reached deeply by God if you're going to go the distance with Christ. And I don't know about you, but I, I think everybody in here wants to go the distance with Jesus, right? How many of you are looking forward to falling away from Christ and not worshiping him? I know it was a, I, I was, it was a confusing question. I, even as I was saying it, I was like, I'm the... <laughs> Amen. Even as I said it, I'm like, I, I, this is wrong, right? <laughs> None of us are coming to church waiting for the day when we're going to renounce Christ, right? We're all coming because we want to keep going, because we want to have these deep roots, because we want to have oil in our lamp. We want the fire to burn bright, and we want Christ to give us this abundant life on earth and this eternal life in heaven that he promised. Every single one of us wants this, but the delays test us, and superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. So if your discipleship paradigm is I come to church 90 minutes a week on a Sunday and that's when I talk to God, you will never grow. Okay? You will be an infant forever. We talk about these illustrations like 
A, an infant breastfeeding is a heartwarming thing. A 20-year-old breastfeeding is illegal, right? Like, it's, it's very different, right? Like, when, when Judah smashed into his birthday cake, I was like, oh, it's sweet. It's a mess I have to clean up. If he did that when he was 30, it would not be cute. I would say, you never grew. This is what Jesus is telling us. The third implication from this parable is that preparation can't be borrowed. That you cannot be prepared based on someone else's preparation. Not for this appointment. For a lot of things you can be, right? My wife Rachel uh, has a very polarizing uh, view of me on vacation. I'm either the best person to go on vacation with or the worst person to go on vacation with. Because uh, she says, I love going on vacation with you. I love traveling. Actually, no, she doesn't say that. She says, I love traveling with you. Not, she hasn't yet said I love going on vacation with you. Maybe I have some work to do. I love traveling with you because I don't have to think about anything. Right? I've got all the details down. Right, I know exactly when I'm supposed to be, where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to wake up extra early on vacation because I want to get the most out of it and all these things. And so, so she doesn't have to think about much. So my preparation turns into her preparation while we're traveling. But you can't borrow preparation for this appointment. You can't borrow somebody else's preparation when you meet Jesus Christ face to face. If you are, my, my children can't borrow my preparation right? You can't get prepared to meet Jesus from your friends. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in in the first chapter, his first letter to the Corinthians, 15th chapter, he says, the kingdom of heaven is not inherited by flesh and blood. That means just because your family is faithful, that does not mean you know Jesus, right? Just because your parents are walking with the Lord, that does not mean that you are walking with the Lord for yourself. And then in the second letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, what does he say? He says that every single one of us Every one of us will give account one day for everything that we did on earth, whether good or evil. Preparation cannot be borrowed. The wise ones, they grabbed their oil first, and then they grabbed their lamps. If you look at the order of verse number four, that is what it says. That they grabbed their flasks of oil, then they grabbed their lamps. Because they knew something that the foolish ones did not, apparently, that a lamp without oil is no good. Right? It's like a cell phone with no battery, right? Nothing's going to happen. It cannot work. It's not going to do the thing that it was supposed to. And, and this is what I want to talk about with, with church, right? That if we just do stuff at church, if we just serve in the ministry, or maybe you tithe regularly, or whatever you do, whatever way you serve, but there is no real relationship with Christ, it's empty. Christianity without Christ is empty. We need to understand this, church, because I think that as we look at Matthew chapters 23, 24, and 25, so many of us can benefit from Jesus' teaching. But perhaps even more of us don't think that he's talking to us. We have an unbelievable ability to vilify people in Scripture when Jesus is actually talking to you. We have an unbelievable ability to say, oh, those terrible Pharisees, and it's like, He's talking to us. He's talking to the good church folk, right? That is who he is speaking to. The religious leaders, the people that were at church, the people that did all the right things, the people that even tithed a little bit on their spices. And we have such a tendency to look at them like they're the problem, to vilify them, to look at the foolish virgins and say, I would never be like that. I always have oil for my lamp. And Jesus is like, no, no. I'm talking to you. If he's telling the disciples this, chances are it could apply to us somewhere. Amen? 
So I pray that we would understand that preparation cannot be borrowed. And I think that as many people begin to follow Christ, right, they're, they're not necessarily fully uh, people that have, have deep roots in Christ, but they are following something that looks like what it means to be a Christian because it sounds good. And I think many people do it without thinking through some of the less obvious implications of what this actually means. And I don't think it's converts' fault. I don't think it's people who hear the gospel and accept the gospel. I don't think it's their fault totally. I think much more it's the people who are supposed to be doing the discipling. I think it's our fault. I think we set people up for failure. I think we set people up with a good, happy-go-lucky, feel-good message, and we're like, yeah, here's the gospel. It's everything you've ever wanted. It's going to save you eternally. I'll see you at church on Sunday, but don't call me. right? Don't come over to my house. Like, I'll see you on Sunday, and this is, this is our discipleship paradigm. It's not enough, church, right? It is an empty lamp, right? Now, I do not think sharing the gospel is a bad thing. I do not think coming to church is a bad thing. I think that if we do not disciple people to understand that Jesus wants everything from us, but also is going to give everything to us because of that, if we don't understand that, then we're missing it. Martin Luther said that uh, a convert needs to go through three conversions, a conversion of their head, a conversion of their heart, and a conversion of their purse, right? He's saying that it takes a while for every part of our life to be converted, right? Because we think of our money, and this isn't a ploy to hit you up for money. That's not what I'm doing. You know that's not what we do here. Uh, but we think that all this money I get is mine, and then I give a little bit to the gospel. Jesus says, no, all of everything you have is mine. He's not telling everyone to give everything you have away and we're all going to be homeless today. That's not what he's saying. He's saying everything I give you is for my glory. Everything I give you is so that you would use it to further the gospel. Jesus, in my opinion, is far less concerned with the 10% tithe than he is the 90%. What are you doing with the rest of the money, right? If you just give some money to church, but you act like a fool with the rest of your money, he's not pleased. He's not happy. We can't just come in and pay tithes and say, oh, good. I got my fire insurance, right? I paid my insurance. I'm going to heaven. That is not how it works. All of it is Jesus's. All of it is for his service. And we, we feel the same way with hospitality, I think, right? That, that we think our houses are our little slice of personal indulgence or personal comfort. That I am going to come here and then I'm going to retreat to my home and no one ever gets to come to my home. That's my private space. I do whatever I want in my house. And Jesus is like, no. Everything is mine. It is all for my service. That if we understood the reality of hospitality, the reality of Christian hospitality, that we are to be welcoming strangers into our home, that we are to be sharing our table with our brothers and sisters around us, that our homes are not meant to be a place of individual, personal, privatized indulgence. Our, our homes are meant to be a place to heal our communities. Our homes are meant to be a place where the nations would receive healing because of the hospitality that we are showing. Going. So I think that we, we miss this pretty commonly because we have really nice shiny lamps, but we don't have the oil in those lamps. True discipleship means every inch of our existence belongs to Jesus. So I will make uh, one theological implication here. Again, a parable is a parable. We're not going to get through every single detail on what that might mean and what this might mean. This is why you need to read the Bible for yourself because bridesmaids and virgins show up all over the scriptures. The bridegroom shows up all over the scripture. This talk of oil uh, shows up all over the scriptures. This, this idea of pretty on the outside but wicked on the inside shows up all over the scriptures. 
So you need to do this reading for yourself. But I do believe that uh, the oil that is inside of that lamp is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That without an authentic confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we are repenting of our sins and we are believing in our heart that he is exactly who he said he was and God raised him from the dead and then we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit after we've received salvation from Jesus Christ. I think that's the oil. I think we have a lot of folks that have really, really nice lamps, really, really pretty lamps and we have built this lamp but there's nothing inside of it that when the tribulation comes, that when the bridegroom comes, that when we need the oil in our lamp to light the way, I think we're going to ask people for help. We're going to say, I never really had an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Nope, nobody ever taught me how to pray, I've heard many times. And I've heard also like with discipleship, people are like, why, why are you asking for so much? I'm like, I'm just asking for a little bit of what Jesus did, right? Jesus asked for all of it. Everything is his. It actually isn't even our life anymore. That is the discipleship paradigm that we need to hear every single day. Once you get saved, the gospel says, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. You are dead, right? You died, but we're still holding on to it. And we're still, right, we have a defibrillator on our old life and we're trying to resurrect it to get a couple of these old life comforts. That person is dead, but we're like performing necromancy, trying to raise it back to life. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. True discipleship means every inch of our existence belongs to Jesus. So at the end of the day, the worship team is going to come back out here and we're going to sing a song together. At the end of the day, only one question matters. The only question that will matter after all of our battles have been fought and won and lost, after all of our money has been spent or saved or passed along, after all of our kids grow up and they move out of the house, after everything else, at the end of the day, only one question matters. Does Jesus know you? If that answer to that question is yes, nothing else matters. If that answer to that question is no, nothing else matters. At the end of our lives, there's only one question that needs to be answered. Does Jesus know you? If that answer is yes, he will say, come on into this party. Come on into this marriage supper. Come on into this wedding feast, right? And it won't just be like all the, the good things that you did. Because this message, this text is very much about salvation, right? This is not like, do you have enough oil in your lamp, right? It's not like, have you preached a hundred perfect sermons? If not, the door's going to slam in your face. That's not what Jesus is saying here, right? He's not talking about perfection. Although I do think it may even be a scarier proposition for some of us. Instead of Jesus saying, I never knew you, for him to say like, I know you. I've, I've been waiting on you, right? Like, you, you've been playing me, but you, you do belong to me. So I'm, I, I think that we need to just be paying attention to exactly what Jesus is saying here, that this is very much about salvation. And if we get there and he says, I never knew you, the door's shut. We won't realize we have a problem until it's too late, just like these foolish bridesmaids. But for each and every one of us, we can put the oil in our lamp today. That we can receive all that we need at the end of our lives when we meet Christ face to face. For him to say, come on in. Welcome home. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But I pray that none of us would just let this pass by us and we would end up being one of these foolish bridesmaids. 
who, when the bridegroom comes, we're on the outside looking in. And he says, I never knew you. Every one of us is going to meet that groom one day. So we have to ask and answer the question, am I really ready? Am I ready to keep watch? Am I ready to stay awake? Am I watching everything that's going on around me? Am I being spiritually alert or am I being discipled wholeheartedly by the world? Or am I being discipled by people that do not actually know Jesus? Am I living my life with an outward representation so people will like me, but on the inside, I am not actually following Jesus? Am I living my life with an outward representation of something that looks really pretty, a nice shiny lamp that everyone would say, ooh, ah, nice lamp, great work. But when that needs to get lit, I don't have any substance on the inside. This is the question Jesus is asking us. This is the, the way that we understand that true disciples make provisions to go the distance. And knowing that we can't make our own provisions. That is the, that's the linchpin to all of this. That's what holds it all together. That only Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can give us the provisions to go the distance. We can't try hard enough. We can't change our behavior enough. We can't do a bunch of external things without having the oil on the inside that is the indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God. So each and every one of us needs to ask and answer this question for ourselves today. And that's what we're going to do in worship right now. We're going to sing a song called Open the Eyes of My Heart. It's one that you've probably sung a hundred times. It's one that you probably have uh, grown up on, maybe some of you. For some of you, it may be a new song. But the song is very, very simple. And it becomes a, a, a plea, a request to Jesus saying, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to know you. So if, if there's some emptiness that you're still feeling, if you're feeling like maybe I have a really nice lamp, but I tried to light it the other day and I couldn't get a flame, or if you have felt some of the emptiness that, that we kind of outlined throughout this service, like, oh, maybe, maybe I don't actually know Jesus, you can ask this question in worship right now. You can make it a question. You can make it a plea. You can say, open the eyes of my heart, God, because I want to see you. And if you have questions after service, please feel free to come find me. Feel free to come to the Next Steps Pathway right after this service. Feel free to find the person worshiping hardest next to you and ask them what on earth are they doing. And they will give you an account for why they worship so hard. So I want to invite all of us to our feet. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship. Father in heaven, in the mighty name of Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you that you are the one who has access to our hearts. Thank you that you are the one who can open the eyes of our hearts. Thank you, God, in the mighty name of Jesus, that you have spoken your truth to us, that you have lived out your gospel for us. Thank you, Jesus, that we can actually have our eyes opened right now. Thank you that the oil is available right now, that we can, re we can repent and confess our sins, believe in our hearts that you are Lord and God raised you from the dead, and we will be saved. So I pray right now that we would have an answer to this question. I pray right now that as we... Uh, let this parable fall fresh over us or as we soak in it that we would ask the question of what do I really need because at the end of our lives only one question matters does Jesus know me we ask in your holy name Jesus together we say amen and hallelujah let's give God praise as we sing praises and worship Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.